Amen. Amen. John writes these words in John chapter 20 on the evening of the first day of the week. This is a Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. The women went to the tomb and found it empty. The disciples are having a hard time believing it. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, so you get the picture, right? The, they, they know the tomb is empty. They, they really don't know what's going on, and they're afraid that pretty soon they might be arrested, so they're, they're hiding out, hunkered down with the doors locked. Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. And after he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, God, we love you. We're so grateful that in our lives, in our struggles, in in our futures, in our destiny, in our worth, that you have the last word, that it's what you say about us is what matters, God. And thank you, God, for who you are. Thank you for allowing us in your presence. And God, I pray today, Lord, that you would just open up our hearts and minds, that we would, that we would hear your truth. God, I, I pray uh, that your word would just come with power, that as the snow and rain fall down from the sky and water the earth and cause things to grow and flourish, I, I pray that your word will, will fall down and cause things to grow and flourish in our hearts and in our lives. And, and God, help me. Help, help me to, to say what you want me to say in the way that you want me to say it, God. And my hope and my trust and my confidence is not in my ability, but in the power of your word that is literally God-breathed. God, I pray that you do something supernatural in this place today. If you could take five loaves and a couple of fish and feed thousands of people, Lord, if you can, if you can burst forth from the grave, then, then impossible is no longer in our vocabulary. And God, again, we just thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen. In the beginning, God, the one who is and was and is to come, created everything. He created galaxies, millions of them, stars, trillions. He created our planet, and he filled it with breathtaking beauty. Sunrises, sunsets, oceans, mountains, rivers, streams, forests. I mean, what an incredibly beautiful planet we get to live on. You know, I was heading out here um, late one night, and it's just my iPhone camera. I just took this picture, right? I'm thinking, like, God, you're just showing off, right? You know, I mean, he didn't have to make things so beautiful, did he? I mean, that doesn't even capture what it looks like. But this is our God. He created everything. And listen, not only did did God fill this planet with breathtaking beauty, he also filled it with life. I mean, everywhere we look, there is life, plants, insects, animals, birds, fish. I I mean, if if we were to dig a shovel into the ground and put that dirt under a microscope, it would be teeming with life. Life is who God is. Life is what flows from God. And on day six, God created man and woman, uh, the crown of his creation, uh, the very reason why everything came into existence to begin with. I mean, think about it. You and I are the reason why God created everything. Uh, turn to the person to your right and left and tell them, you are the reason. And now tell them why everything's so screwed up. No, <laughs> just kidding. 
And God created them in his own image and likeness. He placed them in this garden paradise where they had an an up-close, personal, and intimate relationship with God, with with the maker of heaven and earth. And and yes, crazy as it sounds, God would literally take walks with them in the cool of the morning. I mean, that had to be incredible. I mean, imagine what it was like living in a world that was untainted by, uh, by sin and corruption. Imagine experiencing an intimacy with God where, where God would, you know, knock on your door and say, hey, Melissa and Chuck and Steve's out there. <laughs> hey, would you like to take a walk with me? Yes, things were good. Things were very good. But unfortunately, they did not stay very good for very long. You see, even before Adam and Eve made it out of the third chapter of God's 1,189 chapter story, they screw up everything, not only for themselves, but for us as well. They disobey God, they, they go their own way, they, they do their own thing, they, they take that bite, and because of their choice, sin, death, corruption, decay, and separation invaded God's perfect world. But understand, God already had a plan to set things right. He already had a plan to remove the distance. He already, had a, he already had a plan to give death, to give sin, to give separation, to give corruption and decay one final, lethal, once for all time, crushing blow. He even talked about it in, in uh, Genesis 3.16, right after the fall. God tells the serpent, yeah, you, you're feeling pretty good right now. But the time is coming where through the seed of woman, I'm going to bring my Messiah and, and yeah, you're going you're gonna to strike, you're going to bite at his heel, but he's going to do what? He is going to crush your stinking head. Boom. Maple Grove, like I've said many times before, since the dawn of creation, the overriding theme of human history, not biblical history, but human history, has been God's passionate pursuit of a prodigal people has been the story of a loving God doing whatever it takes, and I mean absolutely whatever it takes, Jesus on the cross, in order to bring people back to himself. And listen, God's plan to, to ensure, right, God's plan to ensure that his passion and pursuit would one day reach its desired end, it really was a three-phase plan. And phase one uh, was the nation of Israel. We're beginning a series today called Do It Again. It's a series about the church and about how God did something incredible in the first century and how God, like a kid on a swing, right? Uh, what do you, you push them, they go, hey, this is so much fun. Do it again, do it again, do it again. Well, that's how God wants us to be as Christians. And we're gonna talk about the church, but to understand the church and who we are, we have to see in the context of all of human history and in the context of God's plan. And, and it's three phases. Phase one was the nation of Israel. I understand through Abraham, who we meet in Genesis chapter 12, God built a nation that would, that would begin to show the world, hey, here, here is what the one true God is like. It, it would be a nation that was to be different and that was to live different than the rest of the world. And, and for about 2,000 years, uh, God shapes and prepares this nation for the coming of the Messiah uh, by giving them his law, you know, his words, commands, decrees how, about how to live, by building them a temple, uh, a place where his presence would dwell, by introducing a sacrificial system so that a sinful people could approach God and also to plant the seed in their minds that, that the shedding of blood is required for the forgiveness of sins. And he, 
He continued to shape them by teaching them about holiness and about sin, about how obedience leads to blessings and, and how doing your own thing, chasing after things other than God, often lead to some pretty rough and negative consequences. And so for 2,000 years, God, God tries to shape this nation. And it's not an easy task. I mean, uh, these people like us, they had a difficult time getting it right and had a difficult time keeping it right. God gave them the law, but they couldn't keep the law. God gave them the temple, but more times than not, they either ignored the temple or they corrupted the temple. He gave them kings, and most of the kings turned out bad. He, he sent his prophets with words of encouragement and a call to return to him, and usually they would ignore the prophets or they would find prophets who said what they wanted them to say, and sometimes they would just say, hey, you know, why don't we just go ahead and kill God's prophets? And so as you look at this initial phase of, of God's plan, the Old Testament, you know, the nation of Israel there just seems to be little hope for these people. And if you ever have done a systematic reading of the Old Testament to a Bible reading plan, eventually that stuff just kind of wears you out. And you know what? That's exactly the point. You see, the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, we just get tired of it. It doesn't work. And understand, it, 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 that was its intention, not the work, at least not fully or completely, because the point of it all, the design of it all, the intention of it all was to point to who? Was to point to Jesus as our only hope, because he's the only one that can ever save us. Jesus, only Jesus. Amen? Which brings us to phase two of God's plan, right, to bring lost people back to himself, and that was Jesus Christ, the son of the living God. Who showed us what the one true God is really like, right? If we're wondering, hey, what is God like? Hey, does God love messed up people? Does God chase after prodigal people? How does God feel about my sins and my failures? We just look at Jesus. Phase two of his plan is Jesus, a man who lived a sinful life, died a sinner's death, a substitutionary death. Jesus died in our place. Jesus died in my place. Jesus died in your place. Jesus bore our burdens. Jesus carried our sin. Let's never forget that. You know, because he took it for us, right? The nails and the cross, that was meant for us, but Jesus took it for us. So let, let, let's never Let's never forget that. Let's never take that for granted. Are you kidding me? God allowed himself to go through that for us. Maple Grove, God poured out his sin-hating wrath on Jesus so that he could pour out his soul-loving grace on us, on me, on you, on the entire world. Understand, God's passing pursuit caught up to his prodigal people in all its fullness at the cross. Get it? Good. Uh, which brings us to phase three, the final phase in, in God's plan, his overall plan that was drawn up before the world was even created. And, and, that, and that is our phase, that is the church. Uh, church which is his body, the church which is his bride, the church which is the new and never to be shaken kingdom that he established 2,000 years ago. And like I said this morning, we're beginning a, a two week series that we're calling, again, you know, do it again, do it again. 
a two-week series about the church, about what God actually did in and through people, his people, 2,000 years ago, and, and about what God can, what God wants to do in and through his people here today. And again, we will never really understand you know, why the church is here and what the church can and should do and what the church can and should be and, and what the church can and should be committed to and driven by unless we see it as it's the role that it has in God's plan to restore and redeem mankind. That's the three-phase plan that God deployed to pursue prodigal people to bring us back home. And now what I want to talk about is not only was there this three-phase plan, because understand the church, we've got to understand the context of everything. You know, I, I want to talk about four events that happened 2,000 years ago that had to happen, and if they didn't happen, God's plan would fail. Now, now two of the greatest and most essential events in God's plan to restore mankind back to himself you know, no one's going to be surprised by in this room, right? Would be Jesus is what? His death and his resurrection. They had to happen. Jesus had to die and Jesus had to rise for God's plan to move forward. But understand that there are, there are two more great and essential events that needed to happen or else God's plan would fail. There's two more events. Now, they had to happen, and, and if these events didn't happen, then it really wouldn't have mattered whether Jesus had died and Jesus had risen from the grave. At the first event is the meeting in Galilee. It's Thursday night, and Jesus, he's in the upper room with his guys, and he's just celebrated the Passover supper, and now he's instituting uh, the Lord's Supper, saying, hey, that was the old meal, here's the new meal. Uh, this bread represents my broken body. This cup represents my, my shed blood. And then he tells his guys, you know what? I'm going to be arrested pretty soon. And I'm going to be beaten. And I'm going to be crucified. And they're going to kill me. And then he says this in Matthew 26. But after I've been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. And then we fast forward to Matthew 28. It's, it's Sunday morning, and the, and, and the women arrive at the tomb, and, and they find out the tomb is empty, that, that the stone had been rolled away. And, and the angel says to them, don't be afraid. He is risen. And, and you know what? That changes everything, right? right? It, 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 see, see it, wasn't, it wasn't Jesus who died on the cross on that Friday. It, it was death. And it was fear, right? Because if he is risen, right, that's a game changer, right? You know, I, I don't know what you're going through. I don't know what you're facing. I, I don't know how long that uphill climb will be. But I know that Jesus would say the same thing to you. He'd say, don't be afraid because I've risen. And because I have risen, you have hope. And one day you too will rise again. Amen? And, and now... The angel says, go quickly and tell his disciples that he has risen from the dead and he's going ahead of you to Galilee. You will see him there. And so what's the big deal? Something must be happening, right? Before he dies, hey, I'm Galilee, got to be there. You know, put it on your phone. Put it on your calendar, guys, or you're going to forget it. You know, put that post-it note. Write it on your hand. You know, uh, the angels, right? Hey, remember he said, got to meet him in Galilee. So what the heck's going on? And then fast forward to Matthew 28, 16. 
Then the disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain where Jesus had told them to go. And he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. And, and, and I think Jesus said, hey, what I'm fixing to say, you probably should tune in. Because, like, I'm pretty important. Like, I have all authority in heaven and on earth. And he says, therefore, you know, because I have all authority, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. So why is this meeting in Galilee so important and so critical to God's plan? And because on that mountaintop, Jesus gave these men, he, he gave them their marching orders. He, he gave them their mission. Uh, understand, Jesus had done all that he could to bring the kingdom. Now it was up to them to expand it. Now it was their turn. And just as the Father had sent him, Jesus is now sending them. Get it? Good. And can I tell you what, what really blows my mind about all of this? That, that Jesus not only passed the baton of God's redemptive plan to those 11 frail, fallen, finite, fearful guys hiding behind locked doors, but that he continues to do the same thing, passing the baton of faith to frail, finite, fearful, falling people like you and like me. I mean, I get it. I, I can understand how God could entrust his plan to Jesus, but entrusting his plan to us, to you, and to me. Ed, Ed Cole tells this story of Jesus arriving back in heaven after the resurrection and ascension. When he gets back, the angels are all pumped up to see him, and they're slapping high fives in the air, fist pumping and everything. And hey, Jesus, how did it go? It went great, it's incredible. You know, men will be saved, and Jesus shows them the scars on his hands and in his side. He says, now that I paid the debt, it is finished. Men will and can be forgiven. And the angel's like, that's so awesome. Yes. But then they are like, hold on a second. Lord, if you're here, how will people know about this great salvation? And Jesus said, well, I've given my disciples, and I go, whoa, whoa, whoa. You mean those 11 guys that, that are hiding behind locked doors? I've given my disciples the mission of sharing the good news, of telling people. And the angel said, but, angel said, but what if they fail? You know what Jesus said in the story? And it's true. I have no other plan. Are you kidding me? Listen, Maple Grove, it's the church, it's us, or it's lights out. At the meeting in Galilee, Jesus gives them their mission. And what was their mission? It was to, it was to make disciples, to make followers of Christ, people who would follow Christ, who would, who would try to live their lives and try to be like Christ. And then Jesus, in his, his final earthly meeting with his guys before he goes back home to heaven, he, he wants to clarify this with them one last time. Um, they're in Bethany, just a, a few miles from Jerusalem, and he has this conversation with them. Luke records it. He says, on one occasion, while he was eating with them, I, I think they were, it was 50-cent wings where they were at somewhere, you know, wing night, and he gave them this command. Do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised, 
which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Then they gathered around him and asked, Lord, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Uh, They kind of want to go back in time to a physical kingdom, to the military power of David, to the riches of Solomon. He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or dates the Father has set by his own authority. In other words, it's not your business when I'm going to restore all things. Not your business. You know, and, and I got to tell you, as far as Christ's return, you know, I am on the welcoming committee. I'm not on the planning committee. You know what? I'm just gonna, when he comes, I'm just going to welcome him. You know, and that's my job, not to worry about that, not to worry about times and dates that the Father has set by his own authority. He says, but okay, but here's your job, but you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, and Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. So he clears up with them. He says, hey, guys, here's your mission. It's to make disciples, and it's to be, it's to be my witnesses. It's to be my witnesses. You know, first, you know, in Jerusalem, that would be, you know, in your own community, the people closest to you, where you work, where you go to school, where you live, maybe your own family. And, and then I want you to move over to Judea and then to Samaria. That's the county next door. And they're, you know, they're culturally and, and racially different from you. So I want you to go to people different from you. And then I want you to go to the ends of the earth. When you go, I, I don't need you to be my defense attorney. I, I don't need you to be a salesman. I just need for you to be my witnesses. Uh, to tell people what you experienced, to share who I am with them. And, and so his guys, they go back to Jerusalem and they wait. And others join them, both men and women, until the number of people reached about 120. And do you know what they did while they waited? Look, look what Scripture says. They all joined together constantly in what? In prayer. In prayer. You know, our, our second core value is what? We depend on God. And, and I'll tell you what, it, 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 we need to amp that up, right? Anybody believe we need to amp that up as a church? We need to pray more as a church, right? You know, uh, we need God's help to do things we want God to do, right? If we want the unexplainable to happen here, right, you know, it's, it's going to only happen when we cry out and we pray to God. Um, and so as they wait, they pray, which by the way, if we're waiting individually or as a church for God to move in our lives, that's a real good thing to do, right? You know? Rather than worrying while you're waiting, you know, pray. Pray for God to move. Pray when he's going to move. Now, they didn't have any idea of how long they would be waiting, you know, whether it be waiting a day, a week, a month, but God knew exactly how long. God knew it'd only be about 10 days until the day of Pentecost, you know, the fourth great and essential event that had to happen or else God's plan for redeeming mankind would fail. Now, Pentecost was a Greek name given to a feast that Israel had been celebrating since the time of Moses, the Feast of Weeks, which always took place 50 days after the day of Pentecost. It's when they celebrate the harvest that had begun. It's when they celebrated the giving of the law because the law was given about 50 days after the Exodus. It was, it was the best attended feast, uh, probably because of the weather and the city would swell to 10 times its normal population to somewhere around a million people. And listen, it's no accident that God chose the day of Pentecost for launching phase three of his plan of redemption and birthing the church. Again, new life was like everywhere, right? Don't you love this time of the year? Man, I'm watching these trees in my backyard, and I know what's going to happen because like in the middle of summer, you can't see past them to the other houses. 
But I could see everything now. And like I'm watching these little buds and they're growing. Every day I'm looking out the window, looking out the window. And I know before long, everywhere, life, life sprouting everywhere. God, God knew we'd be surrounded by life. And it's the best attended feast. There's people from all over the world. And it's so cool and it's so God that as they come to celebrate the giving of the law, and the old covenant, that God introduces them to the new covenant, to the better covenant, to the covenant that will be forever, to the covenant that was signed in the blood of his son. And when they, and when they come to the day of Pentecost, Jesus' guys are at the temple. And listen, what is about to happen is a huge deal. Understand, on the day of Pentecost, God's people, they were given the power to proclaim a message that created a movement that changed the world. Okay, they were given the power to proclaim a message that, that changed the world. And, and we see the power coming in Acts chapter 2, verses 2 and 3. Suddenly, a sound like the blowing of a violent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house where they were sitting. Had to be kind of freaky, right? Because it's just the sound of wind, right? It's not, not wind, just the sound of wind. You're sitting there, it's just here, I hear the sound, but like, where's the wind? I'm not feeling it. Then they saw what seemed to be tongues of fire that separated and came to rest on each of the apostles. And all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit enabled them. Now they were staying in Jerusalem, God-fearing Jews from every nation under heaven. When they heard this sound, a, a crowd came together in bewilderment because each one heard their own language being spoken. Utterly amazed, they asked, aren't all these who are speaking Galileans? Now, now you know, we would think, well, okay, that, they were actually insulting them, right? Um, that'd be like, you know, and, and it's just an easy state to pick on. Um, you know, be, you know, I'm going to get, yeah, I, I think, I know it's coming. She's going she's gonna to hurt me, you know? Yeah, aren't they all from West Virginia, right? I mean, aren't they all from Alabama, right? Aren't they all from Green, whatever, right? You know, they're just saying, hey, how can they be doing this, have this skill in language? They're, you know, they, they didn't get much education, and he says, we hear them declaring the wonders of God in our own tongue. I don't know if you've ever been to a foreign country. When you hear someone speak your native tongue, it's kind of refreshing, right? Whoa, okay. Now I can really get the food I want and not just point because I got something really freaky last time I did that. <laughs> Amazing perplexed, they ask one another, what does this mean? What does this mean? And Peter's like, glad you asked. Pulls out his sermon notes. Hey, James, John, would you pass out my sermon outline to everybody? Hey, in the, in the temple booth, would you fire up my PowerPoint, right? He says, because I, I got a three-point sermon that I need to share with you, a three-point message. And, and Peter begins to preach away. Hey, what, is, what does this mean? What's going on? This is serious stuff. Uh, I don't, we don't get it. Peter says, you want to know what it means? First of all, it means that the gospel is for all people. Then Peter stood up with 11 and raised his voice and addressed the crowd, fellow Jews and all you who live in Jerusalem, let me explain this to you. Listen carefully to what I say. I love the first, I love this here. These people are not drunk, as you suppose. It's only nine in the morning. Come by by noon, yeah, we'll be trash, but right now it's only nine. I don't get the nine in the morning. Uh, no, this is what was spoken by the prophet Joel. In the last days, God says, I'll pour out my spirit on all people. And guess what, yo, Peter says, those last days, are what? they're here, they're right now, you're in it. The gospel's for all people. And we're like, of course it's for all people. But understand, if we were in the audience that day, our jaws would have dropped to the ground and we would have been blown away. I mean, that God 
would pour out his spirit on all people. It's the Greek word there for flesh. On all people, on hated Jews and hated Samaritans, you know, would be shocking to say the least to God's people. Though it shouldn't have been if they actually paid attention to what God had been saying since he called Abraham. Then if you jump down to verse 21, you'll see it's still the same topic about the gospel being for all people. And everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. Peter's like, hey, hey, God's kingdom, you're right, it, it has come, um, but it's not an exclusive Jewish-only kingdom. Instead, everyone, Jew and Gentile, male and female, rich and poor, slave and free, educated, not educated, has been given an invitation, has been given the opportunity to call on the name of the Lord and to be saved through his death, burial, and resurrection. Yes, the kingdom is here, and it's universal, and it's all-inclusive. And then Peter hits his next point, and they hit his next slide, and he, he says, Jesus is alive. What does this mean? It means Jesus is alive, and he's both Lord and Christ. You see, Peter begins to preach, and he takes Old Testament prophecies and said, hey, you know what? Jesus fulfilled these, and he points back, hey, you were watching the news, right? You, you, you watch CNN last night, you, you watch Fox, you, you hit the Drudge Report, you know all the stuff, you know about these events, you, you know about Jesus' life and his miracles, and, and you know about his death, and you know about his burial, you know about his resurrection. And Peter says, and you, and you also know that, 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 that it was impossible for death to keep its hold on him because who Jesus was. And, and Peter proves, and he declares to them, that because of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection, that Jesus was exactly who he said he is. Yes, Jesus is alive. And then he says this, Therefore, let all Israel be assured of this. God has made this Jesus, whom you crucified, both Lord and Christ. The guy you killed 50 days ago is God's son. And he's pretty ticked about it. Then Peter says, but there is point three in my sermon as we wrap up, Peter says. But there's incredible promise to get in on. When people heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the other apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Imagine. And now it's been, I just killed God. I was in that crowd. I shouted, crucify him. I, I, I wanted him crucified. I, I cheered when, 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 they, when they beat him. You see, they, this massive crowd gathered, asked two life-transforming and redefining question: what does it mean and what shall we do? And notice the question has moved from their head to their heart, from curiosity to conviction. God came and, 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 and we missed him. God came and we killed him. And how do we get out of this? Is there a way out of this? And all of humanity leans in to hear Peter's response. I mean, what if Peter would have said, hey, sorry, it's too late. There's nothing you can do. Because our God is a one-shot God, and you blew it. You were doomed. And I just thought I'd come here today to tell you about it, you know. I understand, if that had been Peter's reply, we would not be gathered in this room today. But the gospel, the good news, the news that those gathered and the temple needed to hear, and we who are gathered in this room need to hear, is that the one true, always existent, all-powerful, sovereign, and righteous king is not a one-shot God, but instead he's the God of the do-over. He's the God of the second chance. He's the God of new beginnings. Amen? Amen. Do you need one? 
Peter replied, repent to be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Uh, we repent and we're, we're baptized in his name, and, and these are the terms uh, for entering the new covenant, and we receive what? The forgiveness of our sins and the gift of the Holy Spirit. And listen, the Holy Spirit is, it, 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 the Holy Spirit, which is the power that works out in us, what Christ has already done for us. The Holy Spirit is the power that works out in us what Jesus Christ has already done for us. And then he says this, this promise, the promise, the promise that if you repent and are baptized, it is for you and your children and for all who are far off, for all whom the Lord our God will call. With many other words, he warned them and pleaded with them, save yourselves from this corrupt generation. Those who accepted his message which, mean not, which means that not all did, not all do, but those who accepted it were what? Were baptized. And about 3,000 were added to their number that day. Church goes from 120 to 3,000 in its very first service. I say that was pretty successful. Listen, when anyone comes to Maple Grove and believing who Jesus is and, and, and wanting to get right with God, you know, we give them, I give them the exact same response that, that, that Peter did. Good enough for Peter, it's good enough for me. You want to get it right with God, you need to believe who he is, and then you need to repent and be baptized for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will, the promise, God promises, you will have your sins forgiven, and you will receive the Holy Spirit. Amen? On the day of Pentecost, they were given the power to proclaim a message that created, that ignited a movement that changed the world. And this movement, man, this movement, when you open the book of Acts, this, it, this movement explodes. The book of Acts is just this crazy, fast movement. Just check this out. Luke, Luke wants to capture this movement. Acts 2.41, 3,000 were added. Acts 2.47, the Lord added to the number daily. Acts 4.4, the number of men grew to about 5,000. Acts 5.14, more and more men and women believed in the Lord and were added. Acts 6 7, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly. Acts 6 7, a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. Acts 9 31, this is right after Stephen was killed, and, and, and everyone had to flee Jerusalem except for the apostles. Uh, the church, strengthened and encouraged by the Holy Spirit, grew. Acts eleven twenty one, great numbers of people believe and turn to the Lord. Acts 12 22, the word of God continued to increase and spread. Acts 16 5, the church was strengthening in the faith and grew daily in numbers. Acts 19 20, the word of the Lord spread widely and grew in power. Acts 21 20, thousands of Jews have belief. Acts 28 31, Paul's in jail, boldly, and he's in jail in Rome, boldly without hindrance, he preached the kingdom of God. I mean, it's just a movement. And not just in the book of Acts, but also in history. Uh, the followers, the Jesus followers who made up this movement were mostly ordinary people. That's good news, right? Because look around this room. I see a bunch of ordinary messed up people. But they had an impact on the world in which they lived, the world that really wasn't wanting to hear what they had to say in ways that cannot be explained apart from the power of God. And it all started... And in, in, in this obscure small, it was this obscure small Jesus movement. It all started with 11 guys in a room, doors locked, because they were afraid. And it changed the world. Eventually, Rome was not overthrown. Rome became a Christian nation. And how did it happen? I mean, the church in those days, they, they had no political position. They, they could hold no office. They, they weren't able to vote. They had no Bill of Rights. 
Now, they didn't have any kind of religious freedom. In fact, you had people like Nero and a whole litany of emperors all the way up through 300 AD who would light them on fire and dress them in animal skins just to kill Christians for fun. So how did they change the world? Well, they changed it by living out with power the message of Christ. Uh, uh, they changed the world by, by, by living dramatically different than the world. Uh, you see, uh, the, the, the impact that the church has had on the world is astounding. And it's hard for us to get it when we're this side of it, right? Uh, but it, you know, it was common in the Roman world that if you didn't, if you had a baby and you didn't want it, that baby was deformed, it was totally within your rights. Hey, you know what? We're going to go out into the woods. At, we're going to go hiking at the Blue Ridge. Uh, we're going to take our baby, and we're just going to leave it there to die. And know what people would say? That's totally fine. I mean, Plato and Aristotle, they said that was fine. And so virtually all disabled and deformed babies were just abandoned. If you're a girl, your chance of survival were, and a good life were minimal. But the church said, you know what? We may not be able to control what you do, but we're not going to do things that way. We're going to do things differently. That's not how we're going to do it. And so the church, you know, and again, we don't get it. This, we don't understand. But the church valued women, and they protected children, and the helpless in a culture where those were not values. Women were not valued. The helpless were not valued. Children had no value. And, and the church lifted those values. Christian men were told, hey, you, you need to love your wives. They're not your possession. You need to love them as Christ loved the church. And you need to love and protect and provide for your family. In ancient Rome, Christians saved many, many abandoned babies and brought them up in the faith. And Christian homes became the first orphanages and nurseries. When the church began in Rome, there was no social programs for people to take care of the needy. But guess what? They didn't need the government because the church not only took care of their own, but they took care of other people. And that was unheard of in those days. In those days, widows would be forced to marry because they, they had no way to take care of themselves. But the church said, hey, you don't have to do that because we're going to make sure that you're taken care of. Another example was the impact the church had on humanitarian reform. I mean, both Jesus and the church, they had a way of, of championing the cause of the excluded that was often downright irritating to those in power. The inclusion of women led to a community to which women flocked in huge numbers. Slaves, made, which made up about one-third of the population, it would be common for slaves to walk into a church service and, and not be beaten by a slave owner, but have a slave owner actually wash their feet. An ancient text instructed bishops to not interrupt worship to greet a wealthy attender, but to sit on the floor and to welcome the poor. The Apostle Paul said now, because of Christ, there's neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female, but all are one in Christ. And, and that was you know, the first statement of, of people, all people being equal, found in human literature. We take it for granted, right? And the list goes on and on and on of the church living differently, doing differently, being differently in the face of extreme persecution. And eventually, society is so struck by the difference within the walls of this community called the church that it changed everything. It changed their culture. It changed the world. I mean, listen, we're part of a movement that began and, and 
The fact that we're talking about it today talks about the influence and power of this movement. I love what this Yale historian says. He says, regardless of what anyone may personally think or believe about him, Jesus of Nazareth has been the dominant figure in the history of Western culture for almost 20 centuries. If it were possible with some sort of super magnet to pull out of history every scrap of metal bearing at least a trace of his name, how much would be left? I mean, if the world could do it, hey, let anything that has a touch of Jesus and his teaching, let's just pull it out of the world like it never happened. Yeah, kind of like, like, like the, 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 what's that movie, A Wonderful Life, right? If George never lived, whatever, you know, oh, things are really messed up. You should have stayed around, George, whatever. You, you, know, you know, if you could do that, I don't think the world would like what they had left. I mean, just look at the places around our world where Christianity has lost or has never had an impact. I just recently started reading a book that I would recommend, and I'm just starting it out. Um, it's a book called How, How, Christ, How, Christian, How Christianity Changed the World. The author initially called it, kinda, he kind of changed it. The first title um, was um, Under the Influence, <laughs> and kind of catchy, but he, he kind of changed the title. And in it, in it, he documents, right, how the church has so changed the world in so many ways. And I'll just read a portion right here. And, and again, five bucks on Kindle. You know, that one click gets you in trouble, won't it? I mean, you can get a book so quick. Boom, got it. I got two books that quick, like within a second. He says, even knowledgeable, believer, even knowledgeable believers will be amazed at how many of our present institutions and values reflect the Christian origin. Not only countless individuals' lives, but civilization itself was transformed by Jesus Christ. In the ancient world, his teachings elevated brutal standards of morality, halted infanticide, enhanced human life, emancipated women, abolished slavery, inspired charities and relief organizations, created hospitals, established orphanages, and founded schools. In medieval times, Christianity almost single-handedly kept classical culture alive through copying and recopying manuscripts building libraries, moderating warfare through truce days, and providing dispute arbitration. It was Christians who invented colleges and universities. It was the church who dignified labor as a divine vocation and extended the light of civilization to barbarians on the frontier. In the modern era, Christian teaching properly expressed advanced science and still concepts of political and social economic freedom, fostered justice, and provided the great greatest single source of inspiration for the magnificent achievements in art, architecture, music, and literature that we treasure to the present day. Then he goes on. He says, some moderns with no religious beliefs, of course, have, highly, have high ethical standards and often show humanitarian concerns quite independent of Jesus' teachings. Professor Smith, however, tellingly shows how such secular morality could hardly have been possible without a prior Christian ethic that influenced generation after generation. Any noble pagan today recalls, for example, from the thought of killing babies, but noble pagans of antiquity prior to Christianity did not so recoil. The church, this movement, has so changed the world. Here's how this guy summarizes it. This, this, that's just in the forward of the book. No other religion, philosophy, teaching, 
nation, movement, whatever, has so changed the world for the better as Christianity has done. It's time to be proud about the movement we're part of. And understand, those who, those who criticize Christianity only have the right to criticize Christianity because of Christianity, right? It's because Christianity is what led to people having the freedom to express their views. I mean, this movement changed the world. And check this out. Here's, our, here's the slide we're ending right here. Next. Maple Grove. God did it once. Did what? Empower the people to preach a message and live lives that ignited a movement that changed the world. They changed the world. And listen, I'm convinced, you know, it's just a two-week series, but the day of Pentecost is just one day. <laughs> Look what happened. You know, I'm convinced that God wants to do today in and through us what he did then. He wants to create a movement that changes the world one life at a time by, by us living differently, by us engaging our world differently. God, do it again. Right here, right now, in this place, through your spirit. God, empower us to, to live lives and to preach a message. And, and God, create a movement in this place that changes the world beginning with our own individual lives and our families and our communities through your power. In Jesus' name, amen. Would you stand? Our world is full of hurting people who need to know what we know. And they're powerless to do anything about it. And that's what this song is about. If you need prayer today, feel free to come up forward. We can pray for you. If you have yet to surrender to Christ and faith, repentance and baptism, you can come up. The baptistry is always warm all week long, or you can talk to me after service. And it's time for all of us as believers to recommit and be excited, not be ashamed that we're part of the church, but excited that we're part of the greatest movement that human history has ever seen. Amen. Let's worship.